Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, June 8th, we are studying Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 21. St. Paul turns toward the conclusion of his letter in today's text as he speaks to the Romans concerning the importance of his ministry to the Gentiles throughout the world. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Joel Heckman. Pastor Heckman serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you, Tim. It's good to be here. As we get started, Pastor Heckman, give us give us some context, lay the groundwork for understanding this text. I I know in my own personal reading of the epistles of Paul, sections like this are sometimes ones that are easy to neglect because they feel much more contextual than some of the other parts of Romans. Other parts of Romans have been very doctrinal in nature, very clear Christian teaching that is applicable to every time and every place. And and sections like this, as Paul draws toward the close of his letters, sometimes are easy to skip over because there may be details there that we're just not sure what to do with. Help us help us into this text. Give us some big picture. Give us context. What do we need to know going in? Yeah. So on the surface, this might seem like a bit of what people kind of call a throwaway portion where Paul is going into some details that you, you might gloss over quite easily, but actually there's, there's a lot of great stuff going on in this text. So with broader context, that's what we want to start with when we're trying to understand what he's doing in 15 verses 14 through 21. If you go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul has in this kind of starting in chapter 12, verse 1, starts laying out what do the relationships between Jew and Gentile look like after he's established that all have salvation in Christ, like he says in chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are redeemed through Christ Jesus. So he's established that. He turns toward Jew-Gentile relationships in chapter 12, uh, calls them to be living sacrifices. He lists the marks of the true Christian at the end of chapter 12. He kind of goes into a little bit of uh, what is your relationship with the civil authorities in chapter 13 and then 14, um, or even in the middle of 13, he talks about owing nothing to anyone except loving one another. And then he expands a little bit on that, moving even closer to chapter 15. Don't pass judgment on one another. Don't cause another to stumble. If there is someone who is weak, you who are strong have an obligation to bear with people who are weaker than you. So if there's a temptation uh, for someone that isn't necessarily one for you, you might, you know, you think about how can I be a, a, um, a compassionate Christian brother or sister uh, to the person who is weaker. So he's kind of building building up to ch- chapter 15 um, 
as you know kind of that broader context by talking about what their relationship is with one another um and it's a good point to make it's kind of an aside it's it's not that paul is kind of making the the gospel proclamations earlier in the book after those law ones where he's saying all have sinned but all are justified in christ now he's kind of getting to okay now here's what the life of a christian is defined by do this do this do this uh the the heart of the matter is your identity and confidence are in christ and here's the harmonious way of life to which he calls you, but that living that life is not to be at the expense of ultimate confidence and identity in Christ. And he's really just kind of, you know, adding on to, you know, Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And now with that foundation, you know, righteousness is not by works. Let's see what life looks like together. So then moving even further into chapter 15, um, you get to 15 verses 8 through 13. We've gone over the broader context. And now you'd say some of the most helpful context for any given passage in Scripture is going to be the details directly preceding and following this particular portion of text. So what do we see in 15 verses 8 through 13? Um, Paul reminds them he became a servant to both those who are circumcised, so Israel, the Jewish people, and uh, the Gentiles. He says that all in verse 9. And then he kind of really in an interesting way puts together this proposition that he's a minister to both, um, but primarily the Gentiles when he, he cites, uh, I think it's five different Old Testament passages. If you look at verses 9 through 12, you see him citing Second uh, Samuel 22, verse 50, Psalm 18, verse 49, Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, Psalm 117, verse 1, and then the last one is Isaiah 11.10. So he's appealing to his Jewish readership with these Old Testament citations showing that here's the foundation for what I'm doing uh, with these Gentile people. And then he's appealing to his Gentile readers to show them, hey, these were made, uh, these prophecies were made on your behalf. Um, I'm fulfilling these by bringing the gospel of Christ to you. And then right, right up before we get to our section, um, he ends again on a note of hope, praying that the Holy Spirit would fill them with joy and peace and hope uh, on account of this message of Jesus that he has just laid out for them. And then right after the section, you look at 15 verses 22 through 23, you can see not just Paul reaffirming his Gentile mission, but also kind of giving them uh, an explanation for, I wanted to come visit you in Rome, but I have been held up by my strenuous mission to the Gentiles. Uh, So this section we see is kind of sandwiched in between uh, Paul, again, explaining what he has been called to do specifically by Christ, but then also him kind of wrapping up the letter in a way you might say. Uh, Actually, when you get to verse 13 and you transition to verse 14, you might say, if, if you've ever written a letter before, this is where you might start wrapping things up saying, uh, you know, here's what my future plans are. Please include these prayers and then his greetings at the end. But 
that's not to say that this section is just kind of a, okay, I'm saying goodbye to you. There's a lot in this section that Paul is packed in, uh, pointing to Christ, pointing to his work. Uh, and so in, in spite of this context, it kind of makes it look like, oh, it's just something we can pass over with not much more than Paul starting to close out his letter. There's actually quite a bit he's trying to do here. And uh, that's what the context leading up to it emphasizes in the context going away then this is not just a, a you know s- start saying goodbye this is full of great theology that we can draw out of it so that's that's the context that we find surrounding this portion here in paul's letter there really is a ton of great stuff in the text as we will see and and i appreciate you working through that context for us it is a bit of a challenge as you and i were were talking before the program how to how to fit these things together and and just to to throw a few more thoughts out there you know chapter 14 to 15 is really a continuation of the same thought about the life of the Christian church, those who are weak and strong, how do they live together in in those indifferent matters? And that, that section closes out in verse 7 with the words, Paul says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And and as as I look at it, it seems that he he uses that which he's just been talking about the relationship between the strong and the weak in the church. He uses that as a springboard to go back to talking again, more particularly about the relationship between Jew and Gentile in the church. And then that (laughs) into the text that we're going to have for today, uh, particularly about his ministry to the Gentiles, which will then springboard him into the text for tomorrow as to how that ministry to the Gentiles has prevented him thus far from visiting Rome, which is what he'd like to do. And and then I, I, I'm kind of wondering too, if, if part of this is he's hoping for this welcome from the church in Rome that he's talked about mm-hmm. in 15 verse seven. So just a, just a few more thoughts there on, on the context and how to, to fit this in. Any thoughts further, Pastor Heckman, on, on that, or do you want to jump into the text? No, I think that sums it up well, and that, that's kind of a thing to remember when you read through a biblical text. Uh, chapter and verse markers weren't there in the original text, so um, a lot of them are very helpful to kind of break it up into different portions. Uh, this is something we call typography, I think is the word, where you arrange uh, words in and, and such a way that'll help make sense of, you know, a particular paragraph. But, uh, you know, that's it, not to say that, you know, if you get to a new chapter, it's automatically a new huge thought. And I I think in this case, if you look at between verses 13 and 14, you could almost argue you you might even put a new chapter number there. But that being said, I I like your comments. It's kind of a continuation of the thought in chapter 14 uh, with that big heavy theme of Jew and Gentile relating to one another in Christ. So I think that's, that's all really helpful to remember as you approach this portion of the text. Let's jump into the words then. Romans 15, beginning at verse 14. Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. 
for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That is the text for today, Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 21. So lots of stuff here, as you said, Pastor Heckman, and it gets started in verse 14 with something that strikes my ears as a bit unusual because of, of well, things that I've preached before. There's this, this thought out there in the world in general that people are basically good. And as a pastor, I've often been very quick to, to mm-hmm. say, to <laughs> preach, people are not basically good. People are sinners. And Paul preached that in the first part of Romans. Here, Paul says of the Romans in verse 14, he says he he's satisfied with them because they themselves are full of goodness. What? I mean, that that strikes my ears as odd. What's he saying, Pastor Heckman? Yeah, it definitely is odd because if you go back uh, toward the first portion of the book, that's about chapter 1, verse 18 through 3, verse 20. Very heavy law preaching from Paul, and we we look at the section in particular, Romans 3, verses 10 through 18, where he lays it on pretty heavily. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one does good. All these phrases. So um, he's making this case. No one's good, not even one. And then he comes back in Romans 15 and says, you're full of goodness. So it seems like a contradiction, but here's the thing that I think will help us work through it. Uh, 118 through 320 stands in its own context because in that portion, Paul was combating this notion that anything other than Christ's righteousness as a gift by faith makes us right before God. He was really emphasizing the point that not one of you is good in and of yourselves. Your goodness does not come from your works, as we saw uh, with that section on especially Abraham. You know, he is righteous by faith, uh, and we see it. This is a consistent theme in Paul's letters. Uh, Ephesians 2, faith is a gift, not work. So, in the first portion, he's pushing against works righteousness. Here, uh, the goodness he is describing is not something on behalf or on the part of his hearers. It's the goodness infused by God through Christ. Um, it's the goodness and perfection and righteousness given to um, Jew and Gentile by faith. And we see that in the if you even go back to the start of the letter again, this is where that context of the whole letter helps you make sense of a strange phrase like this. 3 verse 21 through 4 verse 12 talks about the righteousness by faith. So it still is pushing back against that phrase that people are basically good. That phrase assumes that there's kind of this spark of inherent goodness in people where if they're given the opportunity at the end of the day they're they're going to do the right thing which we see is not true just not just by example but in the 
testimony of scriptures. So, so the knee-jerk reaction for Orthodox Christians is typically, wait, no, uh-uh, no, no one is good. It's what Paul says in Romans 3, and then you get to this line here, and, and you might say, okay, a more nuanced response in the context of Christianity might be more in order when we talk about this. So, is there any basic goodness in people apart from Christ? Absolutely not. Um, but do we do we at times emphasize that sinner aspect of people at the expense of you know ignoring the saint part, where we have that theology of we're simultaneously sinner and saint? And I think what Paul is trying to do here is emphasize that identity, um, keeping it in the context of Romans, and this is coming as an encouragement. It's not trying to puff the people up. He's saying, your goodness, you're full of goodness because of everything I've emphasized before, because of Jesus Christ. You are sinners and you are also saints at the same time. It's this kind of paradox we live with. We're fully sinner and saints. Sinner because we have our uh, sinful nature inherited from Adam, which produces sinful actions, but we are saint on behalf of the righteousness of Jesus, which has been given to us by faith. So rather than, you know, Paul just completely contradicting himself here, which is what some people might argue, he's really, I, I believe, just encouraging them that you have the goodness of Christ Jesus in you. Um, and that's why he's satisfied. That's why he uses that phrase. I'm satisfied uh, because you are by faith in Christ righteous. And so we, you know, as Christians can can even take that encouragement to, uh, you know, affirm godliness where we see God working good things through other people and encourage them that same way while maintaining that paradox of saint sinner. It's, it's just something that is always going to be a reality as long as we are alive here on earth. We have that saint sinner reality and um, and we see, I think, just Paul encouraging them, you have the goodness of Jesus in you and that's why I'm satisfied. Mm, right. I think that that's the key is to understand what kind of goodness Paul is talking about. And and I think you've laid that out quite well for us. I, I'm reminded of just the way, well, first, the way we speak in the Apostles' Creed that we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church. Mm-hmm. And and when you look at your your congregation, well, they're sinners, but they are also the Holy Christian Church. And it's true, even if you can't see it. And that's why we say, I believe in the Holy Christian Church. But it is true, even though we can't see it. And the same is true of these Romans. They are full of Christ's goodness, which has been given to them freely through the gift of faith. So, so yeah, we put it in the context. That makes sense. And, and even the way he says after it, they're filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. This is, this is something that's been given to them precisely through the preaching that Paul has, has been giving them through this letter. And he starts to talk about that a little bit in verse 15. He says, on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Before we get into that, it's, it ends up being a pretty long sentence that Paul gets into. But <laughs> but take us into that first part of verse 15. Why does, why does Paul need to remind these Romans who are full of goodness, full of all knowledge? Why does, the, why does he need to remind them of these things? Well, it's interesting because these Christians reading this letter would have 
been living less than, oh, we'd say 150, 200 years from the death and resurrection of Jesus, you know, and his ascension. And so they would probably in our minds be the people who needed that reminder less than anyone. And yet here Paul is saying, I've written to you very boldly on, he takes the time to even point this out on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. And I think that's just a simple point that you can never hear the word of the Lord too much or, or that law gospel preaching and, and teaching too much, uh, no matter where you are in your particular context. So here are these Christians um, close to the death, death and resurrection of, and ascension of Jesus, but they still need that reminder because Satan is always at work. Uh, our sinful nature is, uh, as Paul mentions elsewhere in one of his letters, it's always warring within us and that law gospel preaching that law gospel teaching from god's word is something that we need a constant reminder of and it sort of makes you think of you know why do we do something we call catechesis you know training uh, teaching people god's truth uh, whether it be our eighth grade or whatever age confirmands there are, or even our adult confirmands that we do, uh, Paul is advocating here. That's an important thing. Uh, I mean, we recently had our eighth grade confirmation uh, observance. I think it was just a couple weeks ago. And uh, the, the misconception we get with a day like confirmation is it's kind of the peak of your faith or the place where you sort of, either level out or start regressing or going downhill. And we see the numbers of um, young people who either leave the church after that or leave after high school or college. And it's partially because there's not necessarily ongoing catechesis after that. Um, but the, the point is confirmation or, you know, even this letter from Paul, that's not you know, this isn't the end of your instruction. It's simply one more step uh, in your journey of faith. And um, I, I think he's reminding him of this because Satan also wants us to be bored with the Lord's word. Uh, he wants us to think that we know it all. After limited consumption, we read a chapter in the scriptures once or a book once, and we don't need to read it again because if we go back, you know, our, our sinful nature says, you've already read this. It's not interesting. We're always craving the new, but this reminder is so important. Uh, bold reminder too, as Paul says that Jesus Christ is savior of all people. It's not your works that save you. How often do we think that our works are our salvation? How often do our works give us confidence apart from Jesus? Um, I, even as pastors, we need to be reminded of this. Um, and I'm sure you can relate at least a little bit. You know, it's, it's not how many uh, shut-ins we visit. It's not how uh, many people we add to our church or anything like this that gives us our salvation. It's always in Jesus. And, and just like these Roman Christians, I think it is so important what Paul is emphasizing here is uh, we need to be continually in the word of the Lord, as Christ says, I believe it's in John chapter seven or eight, I think it's chapter eight. If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. So no matter where you are in your life, no matter what your vocation, uh, 
however strong you think in, you are in the Lord's word, uh, Martin Luther even makes this point, you can't ever fully master God's word. And so, um, yeah, it's difficult to consume the Lord's word. Um, our sinful nature is fighting against that, but it's the Lord's word is so good and beautiful and interesting, and, and there's so much to be learned, and this, so much that you can't possibly learn all of it in a lifetime. So we take what we can get, we grow in the Lord's word with the shaping of other Christians, uh, church workers, mentors, people, but um, it's not, uh, I've heard it, read it once, I know all I need to know, it's just keep on consuming it, repeated reminders of that, like Paul is saying, and the Lord works uh, wonderful things through that. And I think that's what he's emphasizing in in this verse here. This matter of continual exercise in the Lord's word is is such a, a huge point. And and notice, I mean, to keep it in the context here, Paul has just said he's satisfied about these Roman Christians. They're full of goodness because they've been filled with all knowledge. They're able to instruct one another. And and he I mean, so he he speaks of them very highly. And and yet at the same time he says, but I also needed to remind you of some of these things. And and to do so boldly. You know, he doesn't say exactly what he has in mind when he talks about these bold reminders, but I it brings to mind the the several times that Paul uses that that Greek phrase, oh, is meganoita, I believe is how it's usually mm-hmm. translated by no means. No way is this possible. You know, how often has he used that phrase or he'll he'll take a more you might consider it an argumentative tone this back and forth with people that he's never met in person he, it, it's pretty bold what he's done mm-hmm. but but even these who who Paul says I'm satisfied with you because you're filled with Christ's goodness he says to the and they're able to instruct each other in these things he says I needed to remind you of these things and that's that's such a, a powerful thing you know Martin Martin it reminded me of Martin Luther in his preface to the large catechism which we can't read all of it here on air and there's there's a lot there mm-hmm. but he i mean he really takes to task particularly preachers and teachers in the church who would forsake the catechism who would forsake these basic teachings of law and gospel the very building blocks of the christian faith thinking that they know it all and can move on to something, something else, and he, I mean, he calls them out pretty harshly. It's 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 worth a read. It's it's not that long of a the large catechism. I've I've heard it said is really more like the medium sized catechism. It's really not that <laughs> big, and and it's it's worth the whole document is worth a read. But particularly mm-hmm. for our purposes right here, where the the preface, Luther Luther says this about himself, and I think this is it's it's paragraph seven of the preface. I'm reading from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions from CPH. He, Luther says this, for, I, for myself, I say this, I am also a doctor and preacher. Yes, as learned and experienced as all the people who have such assumptions and contentment, yet I act as a child who is being taught the catechism every morning. And whenever I have time, I read and say word for word, the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Psalms, and such. I must still read and study them daily, yet I cannot master the catechism as I wish but I must remain a child and pupil of the catechism and I'm glad to remain so. And I think it's that, that attitude that mm-hmm. Paul has in mind here for the Roman Christians. We're going to take our break here, Pastor Heckman. You're listening to Sharper Iron. 
Going to take that short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Monday, June 8th. We're studying Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 21 with Pastor Joel Heckman. Pastor Heckman serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Hagman, prior to the break, we left off in the middle of verse 15. And as, as Paul continues there into the following verses, he starts using language that is very reminiscent of priestly language from the Old Testament. We've seen him do this earlier in the book of Romans. Why is this a helpful thing to notice? What's Paul's point? Yes, yeah, so if you look at this I think it's verses 16 and 17 is where the bulk of this terminology comes up. Um, he uses words like minister and priestly service, offerings which are acceptable and consecrated and remaining holy. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 25, he makes a reference to the day of atonement when he's laying out the significance of Christ's death. And even in 12, verse 1, a little bit Closer to this context, we mentioned a little bit earlier, he called upon the hearers to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And that's just reemphasized even in verse 16 here in chapter 15, where um, he refers to the Gentiles themselves as an offering acceptable to God because of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they've been made holy by faith, and uh, it's not something the Gentiles are offering, it's they themselves are being offered. Um, and so it, I kind of read through this, and I, I wondered, why is Paul going to so much trouble to use this priestly language. Um, and I, I think it has a lot to do with what we call um, typology in the Bible, where there is something that's mentioned, uh, say, in the Old Testament that really foreshadows something that happens in the New Testament, uh, or even just something in the future. So we talk about, um, you know, the the Exodus as, as a type, and then what follows after would be the anti-type. The Exodus was the salvation of the people of Israel from the oppression of Pharaoh, and it was the big salvific event in the Old Testament, and that was kind of a foreshadowing of um, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, delivering us from the oppression of sin, death, and Satan. So, as you look at this this idea of typology and you see there are old testament um things that point us to to different things in the new testament i think that's what paul is doing here he's connecting um both the old and new testaments jew and gentile in christ jesus he's showing that uh the event of the 
resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, is what connects the priestly ministry of the Old Testament with the New Testament, because what is Jesus called? He's the great high priest. Um, And Paul uses this language for himself uh, to show that he uh, continues in the work of a priest where he is bringing the gospel of God to these people, Um, you know, just just as priests brought, you know, offerings on behalf of the people before God in the Old Testament, Paul is not just giving, you know, offering up the people, these Gentiles as a, an acceptable sacrifice. He's actually giving them the good news of Jesus Christ. So you, you really see Paul with this language, not just in chapter 15, but also 12 and chapter three to show the connection between that priestly Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament and then Jesus the great high priest as you know the what that was foreshadowing and now that continuation of that typology that imagery is present in Paul's ministry as a as kind of a priest to the the Gentile people so he's not just showing them that connection I think he's really emphasizing that Christ is um, the center of this all. He's the one that connects Jew and Gentile. He is the one that, um, you know, makes that bridge between Old Testament and New Testament. He's the center of it all. And if there's one commentary I read that kind of visualizes it like almost like a bow tie, where if you know, you, you see a bow tie visually, there's, you've got the outer edges that are wider and then it kind of narrows in towards the center point at kind of the knot in the middle. So you might say the Old Testament, um, you know, images and uh, pictures that are used they're moving towards Jesus Christ where you see creation and then you see um, man bringing sin and corruption to that creation. But immediately God promises that a Messiah will come, you know, Genesis three fifteen, the seed, the offspring of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. And that was a prophecy of Jesus. And then as that bow tie comes in towards the center, you're, everything is moving towards Christ. It's getting closer and closer with Solomon, with David, uh, with the deliverance of people from Egypt, with deliverance of Israel from their exile to Babylon. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes onto the scene, and he's the fulfillment of all that, the great high priest that everything was pointing toward. And then that bow tie kind of starts expanding back out to show that Jesus brings these two lines of people, Jew and Gentile, together. They're together in him. They find their salvation and their identity in him. But then it's kind of moving out towards the other end of that bow tie where Jesus is going to return, restore the entire creation, judge the living and the dead. And that will kind of complete this whole thing. But it's really interesting to see how Paul just kind of, you know, it's so easy to gloss over that, but he is making this wonderful connection between the Old Testament and Jesus Christ, and then showing himself as a continuation of that priestly ministry, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to all people, but particularly the Gentile people here. I think this is a very important point to make, that in Christ, and I think Paul would also say now in the ministry of Christ's church, The priestly ministry that was happening in the Old Testament has now been expanded to all people, Gentiles included, which is a a rather remarkable thing. When you think about the Old Testament, one of the, the more unique things that sets the people of Israel apart from other nations is their 
priestly system and all of the Levitical rules and codes that go with it. All of that makes Israel very unique. And yet Paul here, through this use of priestly language, shows how in Christ it's all come to fulfillment. And now all of those things that the Lord was giving to his people in the Old Testament by way of shadow have now come in Christ, but not only to those people who are related by blood to Abraham, but to all the world, to Gentiles as well. And this is, I think this is a really fantastic point to make and recognize, and it it fits in well with, with a point that other guests have made, that the Old Testament for Paul, for the New Testament, is a Christian book. It, it belongs mm-hmm. to the people of God. And, and that includes the Gentiles now. So that, that even though if you had asked a Gentile apart from Christ, what's your family history, they would have not said anything at all about Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. Now the Gentile, too, can say of his family history, they, they're in my family tree, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Adam and Eve, Noah, and, and all of the Christians in the Old Testament now belong to, to Gentiles who are in Christ as well. And it all, as you said, that image of the, of the bow ties, we can't draw it on the radio for people to see, <laughs> but, but it all finds its center there in, in Christ crucified and risen. And, and I think that's, that's where, you know, I mean, again, as we're talking through this, Pastor Heckman, you know, we said this is a bit of a challenge sometimes, but, but these things are really flowing together more for me as, as we're talking through this. Christ becomes the center of Paul's ministry, particularly to the Gentiles. And, and that's where he goes in verses 17 and 18. And here, here again, we have what strikes me, and it might strike others as well, is a, a bit strange. Paul talks about him, his reason to be proud of his work, which ugh, Paul's talked about no boasting earlier in the letter to the Romans. But it does seem that in verse 18, you get the the real reason that he's boasting. It's not in himself. It's in the Lord. Take us into to 17 and 18. Yeah. And in, in, in um, 17, he the first phrase is in Christ Jesus, and that really sets the tone for the next two or three verses. It's really important to see that. Um, on the surface, if you maybe miss that or don't focus on it heavily enough, it looks like Paul is taking credit for the work he's done among the Gentiles. And in a way he is because, you know, he's the one who sailed, he walked, he spoke, he suffered hardships, all this to bring the good news of Christ to these Gentile men and women. Um, And in a very real way, we'd say that God does use his people to, to spread the good news of Christ's death for sinners and resurrection for their salvation. And Paul is one of those instruments. If you think back to Paul's conversion, um, what does it describe him as? As an instrument to to bring God's name before the world, and this is exactly what he's done. So it's a comforting thing in one way to look at this. Paul's saying, "I'm proud of my work." Um, you know, he he has reason to be, and and it's not like a, a boast in himself. It's just saying look at what the Lord has done through me and, and how thankful I am that he used me. Um, and so we don't overlook the fact that God, who could create faith any way he pleased, which he does, he chooses to work through his sinful creatures like you and me, like Paul, uh, to accomplish his gracious purposes. So that's one thing to keep in mind. But on the other hand, um, it, it's not Paul himself whom he's pointing to as the guy who got all this done. 
And that's where that phrase, in Christ Jesus, I have reason to be proud of my work. And then he really, really clears it up if there was any doubt who gets the credit. In verse 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So it's it's like Paul is the instrument that, that Christ is using. He's working through it. If you think about, you know, a... a um, someone who's putting something together, you know, there's a nut that needs to be screwed around a bolt and, you know, um, you need a pliers or a wrench to do that. And, you know, you, the, the hand could screw it on, but you, you might choose to screw it on with that wrench or pliers. That's sort of the way to think about uh, it's, it's, you know, the analogy breaks down at some point, obviously, but that's almost a way to think about how God uses us to accomplish his purposes. He is always the one active through us, uh, but he uses us to do things graciously, but he is always the one who is um, doing the work. He is the one who converts. Um, and even, even if you look back to first Corinthians 12, um, we see no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Or 1 Corinthians 3, Paul plants, Apollos waters, but God makes the seed of the word grow. So it's always, always at the end of, beginning and end God's work, but he does work through us. And remembering that it's God's work, I think, is, is comforting on a few different points that I just want to really quickly make here. First, it's just a simple reminder that salvation is the work of God, not my own work. So I don't look to my, you know, my own accomplishments. I don't try to turn to my own good feelings or thoughts to find ultimate comfort. I turn to the work of Christ because it's what God does, you know, what he's done through a pastor to save you, what he's done through. Um, you know, a family member who faithfully brought you to church, and then you heard the word and the spirit worked that. It's what God has done um, through the gift of holy baptism. Even as he uses a pastor to baptize, it's still the work of God. So it's something where you turn away from what I'm doing and turn to Jesus. A second, even as a, as a pastor, this is comforting because um, pastors are called to feed their sheep and care for their flock, but uh, they're not the ones who convert them or make them to be more like Christ. That, that's not our job. We can't do it. Um, this is the Lord's work. And as, as frustrating as that can be to pastors, it's actually a, a really comforting thing because we are faithful to the Lord. We proclaim his word, his law and gospel. We share God's gifts and word and sacrament. We go out and we're with our people, but it's ultimately the Lord who does the the really um, important, like ultimately important work of converting and bringing people to faith. And that's a comfort to know it's not my you know, education or eloquent words that does that. It's it's the work of Jesus. Uh, as Paul again says, it's what Christ accomplishes through me. And even for parishioners too, this is a huge comfort when you think about witnessing. Um, because we, I think the temptation is to think I go into a witnessing situation where there's a non-Christian friend or family member of mine or a stranger that I meet uh, in, in town or something. And if I have an opportunity to share my faith, you know, as Peter says to give uh, a defense for the hope that I have. The temptation is to think I've got to say it perfectly. I have to have this eloquent argument with point A, B, C, and D laid out in perfect order. I have to have read a bunch of stuff or had something, but really, truly, it's simply sharing the message that Paul has shared and then understanding that 
I don't convert this person. Uh, the Holy Spirit works faith when and where he wills. So, you want to be prepared, obviously, because we're called to, but you don't want to fall into this trap of thinking it's my work that does this. Uh, just just go back to what Paul says here. Uh, I don't speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And in Christ Jesus, we um, we do our work. So a uh, little long-winded there, sorry about that, but I, I think there's, there's a great deal of comfort to be found in that. Paul's not boasting, he's simply pointing us back to the source of faith and life is Jesus Christ, um, and the the one who was really uh, doing that work of conversion and um, turning hearts to worship the Lord instead of themselves or other things. And he's he's doing it through those very simple means, as as we said earlier. This reminder that Paul has given the Romans on very basic Christian doctrines, the words of of Martin Luther in his his catechism of the simplicity of the Christian faith, that it it is it comes down to these very foundational truths. And those foundational truths are the word of God. And that word of God is powerful. Go back to chapter 10 of Romans, that the word of God brings faith. Or, or even all the way back to chapter one, the gospel is the power of salvation for those who believe. And and that's the gospel that Paul's preached, and that's the gospel that has done the work. And Paul reminds the Romans of the extent of that work. He, he says in verse 19 that it's happened from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum. That's, that's the extent of his ministry to the Gentiles, he has said. Now, Pastor Hackman, I, I think most of us have a decent idea of where Jerusalem is, but Illyricum is hard to pronounce. <laughs> I had to, <laughs> had to check myself to see if I, I'm pronouncing it. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, Illyricum. Mm-hmm. Where, where is it? Why does Paul refer to it? So Illyricum, I, I looked it up, and if, if my sources are correct, which I think they are, it's referencing uh, modern-day northern Albania. And before I looked at a map, I'll be honest, I had no clue where exactly that was. Geography is not one of my strong subjects. Me, but, me too. <laughs> um, the distance between I, – I wanted to look it up. Just I wondered, why did he mention these two names? Um, and just to get an idea, just to start, Illyricum is about by foot – about 1,078 miles from Jerusalem, and if you sail there, it's about 937 miles straight across the Mediterranean Sea, um, and then a little bit of a trip by land. So it's a tremendous distance to travel um, and and to, to take the good news from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum would have just been a tremendous trip, an incredible thing to do. Um, I looked, I, I tried to research this. I don't, I don't know that Paul himself made the trip there. He, again, this is just one of those things where you read it and you think, why did Paul mention this? Is it because he, he actually went there or not? And I think what he's doing here is whether or not um, he went there, it's to demonstrate that just the extent of uh the gospel's reach that has gone all the way from, we might call it ground zero in Jerusalem, where Jesus rose from the dead, all the way a thousand miles northwest to Illyricum. And um, it it's either, I think Illyricum is probably either a region that Paul traveled to himself or one which had been evangelized as a result of 
Paul's mission work to a different region or city nearby. Uh, so really, the, I think the point is that the gospel is spreading from Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the world. Um, and it's an evidence of not just Paul's mission to spread the gospel to Gentiles. He's saying, you know, the the, the gospel knows no boundaries, especially with geography. He's saying it's gone all the way here. Look at look at what the Lord has done incredibly. Again, going back to Christ's work through me. Look at how far God has taken this good news of salvation to to Gentile hearers and maybe even Jewish hearers that far away. Uh, probably mostly Gentile hearers, um, and it also. I think of the the Great Commission where where Christ calls his apostles to make disciples of all nations, including places, you know, such as Illyricum. Uh, When you look at Acts chapter 1, he says, you'll be my witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. And this is just evidence of God making good on that promise, on that uh, mission to take the gospel to the farthest reaches of the world. And it's it's not confined to a particular language or region uh, or, or any other characteristic. It's, as we see in 1 Timothy 2, 4, God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So God was accomplishing this through Paul and other people, uh, knowing, and, and what a comfort to know that the Lord is still bringing that farther than Illyricum. You know, how, how far is Okarchi from Jerusalem? I have no clue. But, but it's made its way over all the way over here through various men and women who, as Paul did, uh, you know, heard the good news and, and either taught their children, who taught their children, who eventually made their way over here, um, or, or however the Lord brought the word here. But uh, that, you know, I, I don't know that, uh, you know, again, Paul went here, but I think his point is, look at how far the Lord has spread his word and continues to spread it. And let, you know, let that be a reminder of, you know, through persecution, through, you know, everything that might hinder the word, the word of the Lord still endures and is spread. And and that's an encouragement to us, not just because we've received that word and, and by the gift of, you know, the gift of the Holy Spirit have had faith created within us, but uh, it, it's something that not, no force on earth can stop the word of the Lord. Um, it'll it'll spread as God sees fit to spread it, and as disheartening as it can be to see persecutions in the world, whatever forms they take, um, God's word spreads through his people, and that's a big comfort, I think, that we can get from this little, <laughs> little mention of Illyricum in Jerusalem in this passage so a, a couple of just real quick things on on illyricum because i you know i it's it is an unusual it's not one we read about very often so there is no record in the book of acts of paul going to illyricum which is not to say that he didn't it, mm-hmm. go there it's just to say luke didn't write it down if he did the the thing about illyricum that i just and this is this is me wondering out loud mostly. From what I from what I saw on maps of Illyricum, Illyricum is more of a region than a particular city. Jerusalem is a city. Illyricum appears to be a region, a, a province of sorts of the Roman Empire. And and mm-hmm. it was hard in sorting through the maps to know. Well, is this map from the time of Paul or not? That I don't know. But but looking at it, generally Illyricum and and for those who who like a bit of geography, I had to look on a map too. Illyricum is if, if you Italy's the boot in the Med- Mediterranean Sea, mm-hmm. and so the sea between Italy and Greece on the 
the calf side, the heel side of the boot, <laughs> that's the Adriatic Sea. And so if you go across from Italy across Adriatic Sea, that's the area of Illyricum, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. And and thinking about where Jerusalem is, so Jerusalem to Illyricum would be the spread of the gospel from ground zero, as you said, all the way up to basically where Rome would have been. So think of Italy, that is, quote, Rome proper, in a sense. And so mm-hmm. so Paul's saying, look, the gospel, I've, I've preached the gospel to Gentiles all the way from Jerusalem up to the boundary of Rome. The next text that we're going to look at tomorrow, he's going to say, I want to come to Rome. And I want to go beyond Rome, and so I wonder if he's if if that's part of the the progression here too, just to mm-hmm. to keep it in that context. Anyways, that's and that took longer than I really intended to take, <laughs> Pastor Hickman, because I want to. We've got about three minutes left here, and I want to let you talk about about this last Old Testament quotation that Paul gives us here. It's from Isaiah fifty two. It's the last Old Testament quote proper that he offers for us in the book of Romans, and I think it provides a good opportunity to close out and round out this text as a whole. Yep. So this is this last couple verses, as you as you mentioned, is from Isaiah fifty-two, verse fifteen. And to put it in context, back in Isaiah, this is one of the I believe it's the I want to say it's the fourth of the suffering servant songs in Isaiah. I might have that number off by one or two, but I believe it's the fourth of such songs where um, it's it's referencing a suffering servant who is going to come along and. Um, be offered as a sacrifice for sin, be flogged, be be re- rejected and scorned by men, and ultimately killed to save sinners. Um, by his wounds we are healed. Um, and if it's referencing Jesus. Isaiah 52 is referencing Jesus. Um, and this little portion that Paul quotes is directly from that suffering servant song. Um, and I, I think it's a great way to close out this portion because it really reinforces everything he's been saying in this portion up to this point. You know, whose goodness do you have? It's Christ Jesus's. Whose work uh, is is this, you know, carrying of the gospel to Gentiles? It's Jesus Christ. And then even here, he kind of still is... is kind of showing them, here's why I'm taking the gospel where I am, because it was prophesied almost 800 years ago that the good news of this suffering servant, Jesus Christ, would go to people who had never heard it before, who um, people who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So it's a great reference to... um, you know, who's the primary actor in all of this. It's not Isaiah who made the prophecy. It's not Paul who is reminding them again, going back to that reminder in verse 15. It's, it's not the Gentiles who are hearing it. it it's always Jesus Christ. And of the 50, I, I think it's over 50 times that Paul quotes the old Testament or makes reference to it in this letter of Romans, this is the final one. And I think it's very appropriate that it's a reference to that suffering servant song in Isaiah, which is all about Christ. And as he starts to close out the letter um, again, he's, he's, he's doing this thing where he's drawing in Jew and Gentile. Okay. Here's the old Testament reference. Here's the, you know, perhaps the greatest prophet in the old Testament, Isaiah and he's talking 800 years ago that this message of Jesus Christ would come to Gentiles too. So um, not simply reinforcing 
the Jew Gentile reality of being one in Christ and being safe through him, but also saying, uh, this is, this is the foundation for what I do. Um, this is, this is why I'm taking the gospel to places like Illyricum and beyond because the Lord has called me to take it to people who haven't heard it or understood so that he can work that understanding uh, through the hearing and save people. So again, who's the main actor, the primary actor in this reference? It's not Isaiah or Paul or Gentiles, it's Jesus. And what a fitting way to end his Old Testament citations with a reference to Christ as the one he carries to the people, but also the one who, who really carries us uh, through his death and resurrection that were being prophesied in this Old Testament citation. So really, I think a great way to close out this pericope and begin to close out the book. Pastor Joel Heckman is the pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma, helping us this morning with Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 21. Pastor Heckman, thanks for your time today. Yep, thank you so much. It's an honor to be on. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.